Well, good morning, everybody. Praise God. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. I'm so glad you're here. Whether you're coming from online or whether you're in my home, McKinney, Texas, welcome. This is Gospel Saving Church. I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli, and this is one of God's true churches of these last days. And this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. I hope you didn't come here today to be entertained. That is not why the Bible says that people are supposed to come to church. The Bible says you're supposed to be going to church, if you're a Christian, to fellowship with others, to be edified by, the, by those that are there, and to edify those that are there. If you're not standing with the Lord, the Bible says that you're supposed to go to church to come to the Lord, to learn how to come to the Lord. But you're not supposed to come to be entertained. I'm not an entertainer. So praise God. I hope that's why you're here. You're going to hear the Word of God today, the true Word of God. And I'm not going to give you my spin on it. We're just going to talk about the Word of God. So if you guys want to join me, we'll always start with a word of prayer. Ask God for His blessing upon the Word, because we know the Word says that only by the Spirit of God can we understand the things of God. So if you join me, please, Lord, thank you for bringing us all here today. As I prayed earlier, Lord God, those that, are, that have the ability, that, that are blessed to be able to listen to this message, Lord God, you gave us another day. There's many people that didn't get this day. Many people that died overnight or this morning or just early this afternoon or whenever, Lord, those that are listening to this message, maybe it's in the evening and some people, lots of people have died that day. But Lord, you gave them and me another day to be able to, if we love you, Lord, to serve you more, to get to know you more, to have fellowship with you, Lord, to walk in your spirit and to walk in truth, Lord, to walk in love, to be lights for Christ, Lord. Or, Lord, if they're not yours, Lord, you gave them another day, Lord, another day of grace that they would be able to come to you, Lord, if they would just respond. But thank you, Lord God, for another beautiful day. I pray that we would not waste it, Lord, or if those that are listening at night somewhere over the world, Lord, I pray that they wouldn't waste their next day, Lord. I pray you'd help them to realize how precious each day really is. God, I pray that your word would speak to us today by your Holy Spirit, God, please, that I would get out of the way. I don't want people to hear me. Who cares who I am? Who cares what church we have? Lord, I just pray that Jesus Christ be glorified and magnified in all that I say and all that I do, and that your word and that you speak through your word by your Holy Spirit to touch people's hearts, Lord, to either bring them to you or strengthen them in you. Thank you, Lord God, and we love you and praise you, and I ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Today we're in a brand new track, chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 25. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12. Again, that's Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. We're starting a brand new chapter this week. Title of our sermon today, God's hand is not short to save. God's hand is not short to save. I'm going to read Acts 25, 1 through 12. You can read along with me, or you can listen along, whichever's better for you. But praise God, here we go. The Bible says this, Acts chapter 25, verse 1. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, Let those who have authority among you down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained there among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul be brought in. When he had come, the Jews had 
come down from Jerusalem, stood about, and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Verse 8. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know, for I am an offender. If I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. So over the last couple weeks, we talked a lot about Felix. Remember, he was the governor of Caesarea before Festus. Now we see a chapter here where Festus kind of comes in. Felix was involved with a trial a little over two years before in Acts chapter 25 that the Jews had called against Paul, where they had laid some serious accusations and claims against Paul because they were hoping to get him killed for his preaching of Jesus and his preaching of the law of Moses. Paul, of course, defends himself with truth and logic, not with flattery and lies and false accusations that the Jews were trying, trying to sway Felix with. Felix doesn't bite, remember, because he, he couldn't find any fault in anything Paul had done wrong. So he doesn't give in to the Jews and doesn't give Paul over to the judgment of death. Instead, though, he keeps him in Roman custody safely in Caesarea with, remember, we talked about this, many royal liberties, saving him, that's going to be a constant theme throughout the message today uh, via the title, but saving him from the hands of the murderous Jews. But that wasn't all we talked about concerning Felix. Paul, during his defense, had an agenda to tell them all about Jesus Christ. And he, and he did plant some good seeds for Jesus Christ. Remember, we talked about that last week, how, you know, it, maybe not his witness didn't seem like much to us, but, you know, certainly it got Felix's attention and it planted some seeds on Felix's heart. And we saw Felix last week respond in a godly way. He ended up calling Paul, remember, specifically just to talk about Jesus Christ with Paul, not, not to talk about his character not to talk about his judgment, but to talk to him specifically about Jesus Christ. And Paul's witness was going well until, of course, Paul gave him the heat of how to believe in Jesus Christ and how to receive Jesus Christ and how to be saved. And instead of, remember the last message, fight or flight, instead of flying to Jesus, he ran away. Instead of flying to and surrendering, running to and surrendering, he flew away and left and got away from Jesus. We then learn why Felix rejected Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that it was because he loved his sin. He loved his sin, he loved his unrighteousness, and he loved money. It's so sad. And remember, because he loved money so much, he continued to call Paul for the next two years, hoping that Paul would give him money. How sad was that he rejected eternal life for the temporal things of this world like money and power and so on and so forth in his unrighteousness. And although Felix knew Paul was innocent, he didn't let him go. Instead, Scripture tells us that he wanted to help the lying, cheating, and hateful Jews that wanted Paul dead, and so he left him bound in Caesarea. 
Today, our scripture opens up with a new chapter of Acts chapter 25 and a new chapter in Paul's life. Read verse 1 again with me, and let's start looking at this new chapter of Paul's life. Verse 1, Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up to Caesarea to Jerusalem. So Festus, that would be Portius Festus, as chapter 24 just told us last week, uh, gets his appointment from the Roman government to take over his governing you know, Roman duties in Caesarea. And so he comes taking this appointment, you know, usually, of course, to get your appointment in government, you have to go to the city that you're going to, to get your, you know, to become a governor over. And then they kind of have a little ceremony or something and say, okay, this is the, the new governor. And so that's what he does. He goes to Caesarea to kind of, you know, take on his duties and take the charge of leading Caesarea now for governor. And, but then he, he stay, he gets there, but notice he only stays three days. That's kind of weird. Then after just three days, he goes from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Why would a brand new ruler, a governor of a new province, decide to only stay three days in one section in his area and then move and go on? Why might he have done this? Keep that thought in your mind. I think that when he came to Caesarea... I personally think he talked to Felix, because he would have. He would have talked to Felix. Felix was the man he was replacing. And Felix, who still wanted to help the crooked and evil Jews that were against Paul, well, Felix, I think he talked to old Festus into going to Jerusalem to talk to the Jews about Paul. Scripture doesn't plainly tell us this, but I do believe that my conclusion does have substantial evidence as we continue to read the whole section of Scripture. Look at verses 2 and 3. Look at the common sense we can come out of verses 2 and 3. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would uh, summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. Using some simple logic, we can ask some simple questions here that will help us ascertain the things where I I made my uh, assumption from, where I made my, I guess you'd say, interpretation of this scripture here. How did the high priest and the chief men of the Jews know that Festus came to Jerusalem? I mean, he was just a governor. They don't have parades when governors come to towns. I mean, the Jews, they would have just been the Jews and doing their Jewish duties and keeping the temple and keeping the, you know, the synagogues and so on and so forth. And how would they have known Festus was actually coming to Jerusalem? I mean, Jerusalem's a kind of a big place. Did they just, were they, were they just walking around and, oh, 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 oh hey, oh, how, how are you? Oh, who are you? Oh, I'm Festus, governor of Caesarea. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Can we talk to you about Paul? I just don't see it. I, I just don't see it. You know, Festus would have been coming to Jerusalem. That, that I just don't see that happening. I just don't see this as a meeting that was just by coincidence. I believe that they knew he was coming because the whole thing was set up by Felix. Because if the meeting wasn't set up, wouldn't the religious Jews have had to request a meeting with him before this day? And that's usually how the government works, right? You can't just walk into the governor's office and go, Hey, I want a meeting with the governor today because I'm uh, so-and-so. They'll be like, oh, that's nice, sir. He has a waiting list of, you know, 12 days. Y'all come back in two weeks. No, I want it today. Well, it says he stayed in Caesarea for three days, and he came to Jerusalem, and then they had their meeting right then and there. If this meeting was not set up, he would have had to set up a, a, a meeting with his office. How would, how would the Jews have been able to set up a meeting with his office when he was only in office for three days? I, 
ridiculous to, to see this any other way as a meeting that was a coincidence and not set up purposely. You just have to be blinded. You can't got to not even look at these things. So, so this meeting was set up for sure. I think it's plain to the eye to see. Um, if, if, if an animal walks like a duck and it acts like a duck, is it a dog? It's a duck. So here, walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it's a duck. So here, same thing I see with Festus and the Jews here. Anyway, this corrupt meeting, I believe, was set up the whole time, set up by none other than Felix, the corrupt politician who was an evil man. Did you happen to catch what verse 3 told us that they wanted Festus to do? Their evil plot against Paul. Verse 3 again, they asked him for a favor that he would call Paul to Jerusalem while, now this is all in their request to him, there's, there's nothing hidden here. While they wait along the road in a secretive spot, that when they transport Paul by, then they just jump out and they kill him. They weren't even being secretive about their evil plan this time, like they did with the Roman commander Lysias. Remember back Acts a few chapters ago, they, they, they came up with this plot. Forty of these nut Jews came up and said, hey, we're going to take a vow. And, and, and till, we, till we kill Paul, we're going to take a vow that we don't eat or drink. Well, they're dead by now because... They would have held their vow. That's what Jews did, and they wouldn't have ate or drank. This is this is several years later now, and so they would have been they would have been dead. But here, they they, they kind of go around it around about the last time. But here, they just come right to Festus, and they're like, "Hey, well, do us a favor, call this guy to Jerusalem. Here's what we want to do." Well, they're not even being secretive about it. They just, "Hey, we want to kill him. Come on, that's bold. That is." Bold. Does their plan sound familiar? As I said, remember the 40 plus Jews, Acts chapter 23. The Jewish leadership here uh, must have realized that the 40 deceased Jewish nuts had a brilliant plan because they're still trying to use it against Paul. By the way, isn't it obvious here that the Jews know how to hold a grudge? Remember, this, this, where they're at here with Festus is more than two years after their last trial with Paul, and they're still holding a grudge against them. They still are wanting to kill him. They see their opportune time with Festus, a changing of the guard. They couldn't get Felix to give him over in their hands. That must have been God's sovereign divine power because Felix really didn't care about Paul. He, he, he was kind of on the corrupt, crooked Jew sides, but God's divine power, Paul wasn't going to be killed until he made it to Rome years later. We know that it happened under Nero in about 65 AD. But here, they really know how to hold a grudge. They they, they emulate the saying, never forgive and never forget. And that is not, obviously, the Christian way to do things. Obviously, we know the Bible says that if, God, if you won't forgive anybody, then God won't forgive you. That's, that's the Christian walk, and so that's what Christ wants us to do. But these people, they were full of hate. They were not children of God. They were children of the devil, who has been a hater since... He was, you know, since, since the beginning. So, so they're still oozing with hatred for Paul after more than two years, and they meet up with Festus in Jerusalem, uh, a meeting set up by Felix to ask him to, you know, take part in their evil plan, right? To basically allow them to murder Paul. But does Festus bite? Does he say, oh, yeah, you know what? That's a good idea. I don't want this guy anymore. He's eating up Roman money. He's costing us money. Go ahead and have him. No, verse 4 and 5. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me to accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. Festus doesn't give in to their ruthless and evil requests. He gives the command that Paul should stay where he is in Caesarea until he, Festus, goes back there so he could, did you catch it? 
Did you catch what Festus said was going to happen when he came back? If you didn't, it's right there. He says, so that you, we'll see, we're going, to, we're going to hold them up here. That means they're going to have another trial. That would be Paul's third trial standing before his Jewish accusers uh, and the third time, I should say, since Acts 21. Talk about a life of drama for poor Paul, right? Three trials, both the ones before this, he was found innocent. There was nothing wrong. The, 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 he, he was, he, was it anything wrong? Two, two before this, and now we got to have a third one, right? It's the first two, you know, they're like a, they're, there's a thing, a three-strike law in some states where if you're guilty three times, then you go to prison forever. Well, maybe this will be the third time Paul will get the strike of innocence. I, I don't understand, but it, just a life of drama. But, you know, God told him he was going to suffer for him. So anyway, I find an absolute idea here in in the Christian world that we have today upon this idea of the drama that Paul went through for God, although God saved him from it and God's hand wasn't short to save him from all the things that he went through, of course, until it was time's Paul's, Paul's time to die. I, I do find a ridiculous idea that there is in the Christian world today that, okay, here's the teaching of many churches. If you just turn to Jesus, your life will be perfect. Your life will be great, and you won't have any problems at all. Wow. Talk to the Apostle Paul about that. If you had anybody to talk to, I want you to consult with the Apostle Paul, King David, when God had anointed him king, and Saul was still the king, Joseph, whose brothers sold him up the river to Egypt, who did nothing wrong. Job, who was a righteous man in all the East, and the, uh, the, God allowed the devil to have him for a while. And, and how about the many devout followers of Jesus Christ that are suffering under the Muslim persecution in the Muslim-controlled countries? Ask them if their lives, after they turned to Jesus Christ, were perfect. Ask them if their lives had no problems. Come on, people. This is not biblical. This is a this is a, a, a weird concoction that the devil's tried to make up. I I do kind of believe that it, it it's just another tool in the devil's tool belt because if if you teach people come to Jesus and everything will be great and then people really do turn and then and they're told everything's going to be great. I I think it's another tool in Satan's belt to say, oh see it's not great. Why did you turn to Jesus? And then that just makes people want to turn away. Got to be honest. The Bible says count the cost. You're going to come to Jesus. You're going to partake in a war. You count the cost. What is that going to really look like for me to do that? Is it going to be perfect? And is it going to be a you know a hill of daisies and you know ice cream sundays and you know marshmallow cakes? No, it's not. And so please, 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 Jesus Christ nor the Bible ever promised the followers of Jehovah under the old covenant. Or Jesus Christ under the, new, under the new covenant, a perfect life with no problems. What he did promise is, is that if we turn to him, as the title of the sermon says, his hand would never be short to save us from anything that would destroy us and leaving us without his guidance and direction. Psalm 23, David, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? That doesn't sound like a good, easy nothing, no problems, life. But he goes on, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, what he says, he says, I shall fear no evil, for Lord, I know that you are with me. You see, he doesn't say he's not going to go through the suffering. He says that I'm going to go, I'm going through this, but it's okay. 
because I'm with Jesus Christ and we're together, right? Jesus Christ, John 16, 33, speaking to his chosen 12 apostles. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. He's not saying, I'm going to give you tribulation or I'm going to make your life miserable, you know, miserable, 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 miserable. But he is saying, in this world, you are going to have problems. Pretty much that's, that's it. But, but here's the good part. Here's the, his hand is not short to deliver us, right? But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. You see, it's not about having a perfect life with no problems. It's about if you're standing with Jesus Christ and you go through these things, he's there for you to lean on and he helps you get through those things. Because guess what? Whether you're with him or whether you're against him, you're going to have tribulation in this world. You already know this. If, if you're more than, I would say, 10 years old, and you're listening to this message, you know that in your life, whether you're against Christ right now or whether you stand with him, you know life is full of trouble. It's just life. Life is full of crap. It's full of hardships. It's full of despair. A sister in the Lord just told me this morning her uncle's house burned down and he didn't have insurance. That's trouble. That's bad trouble. That's bad, 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 bad trouble. Now, there, is he with Christ or is he against Christ? Because if he's with Christ, Christ will provide for him. He'll help him through it. He'll get him another house quickly. If he stands against, well, then, you know, it's, it's up to the world. Anyway, if you turn to Christ, your life won't be perfect or become just this wonderful, you know, oh, man, daisies and everything. And problems won't go away. Just think of it like this, though. Problems are going to come, but Jesus Christ will help you through them, saving you from the destruction that they can bring to your life, that they will bring, excuse me, to your life. And I'm telling you, boy, oh boy, he knows how to deliver his children out of the hand of evil things and out of the hand of big, big, big problems. Anyway, uh, just a false idea in the Christian church. Please understand, turning to Christ is, is an easy thing to do, but the walk is hard. Count the cost, and it's not going to be easy. But back to Paul, his drama, and how Jesus Christ is helping him and saving him through it. We just read verses 4 or 5 that Festus didn't give Paul into the Jews' hands and tells them to go to Caesarea for another trial. And he does this because he wants to hear just exactly what Paul did to them uh, to find out why they wanted to kill him so bad. I mean, that's a pretty, that'd be a concern in my mind. Well, why, why do you want to kill him so bad? I understand that you hate him. I understand you want to, but why? So Festus here, up until this point, I don't want you to be deceived though. Festus sounds like a pretty righteous guy thus far. But I don't want you to be deceived. He's not. And you'll see as we continue to read on in these verses. Look at verse 6. Listen to what the Bible says. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, that's key, I'll point that out in a second, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought in. Festus proceeds to, after they tell him their plot to want to kill Paul, Festus then stays among them, like hanging out with them for a little bit more than the Bible says 10 days after their murderous request. That has to tell you something about his character. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on, right? If I'm, if I'm hanging out with murderers or people, if you want to murder, you're a murderer. In, in America, even if you plot our judicial system, if you plan somebody's murder, that's, that's, that's good as first-degree murder. You, you can be charged for that as well as if you did it because basically you're planning it. So these guys were murderers. 
right? And and yet he hangs out with them for 10 days. I mean, you know, then he leaves for Caesarea. That, that's got to tell you that he's not a good guy right there. I mean, would any righteous person hang out purposely with murderers for like two weeks? I, I mean, now, a Christian could and try to reach them for Christ. And the Bible says that that's something that Jesus would do. But Festus wasn't a Christian. Festus, you know, he, he was, a, he was a, a Roman and he, you know, didn't love Jesus. And so he was kind of just hanging out with them and talking and, you know, probably drinking and feasting all the time. So he, you know, no righteous person is going to hang out with murderers for more than 10 days if he's really righteous. Anyway, when he does arrive, he doesn't wait any time to get all of Paul. As the very next day he comes to Caesarea, he calls Paul to court for his third case to examine his case himself. And and the Jews, where are they? Verse 7, when he had come, the Jews who who had come down from Jerusalem stood about. So they were right there with Festus. And they were standing around Paul in this judgment hall where they were. And what were they doing? I'll keep on reading verse 7. And they laid many serious complaints against Paul. They were still, remember, seething with anger and rage against Paul. And they still wanted him dead. So they do the same thing with Festus as they did with Felix. They, they sat there in front of Festus and they laid some serious accusations, complaints. This is why he's guilty. Look at all the bad things that he's done. Yada, 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 yada. He's a bad man. He did this. He did that. Woe is us. He deserves to be killed. And they're trying to sway his mind against Paul, same as they did as Felix. Now, I'm sure they had a lot of great complaints and arguments against Paul, but remember Jesus Christ said that Paul was going to go to Rome to testify him, which meant that nothing was going to happen to him before that. So here, that means they can't touch him, and that means that God kind of opened Festus' eyes and kind of sovereignly made this work. Keep reading. He didn't end up giving him into their hands because... They could not prove, as the Bible says, that which they could not prove of their accusations. This means that Festus, although seemingly righteous so far, but not really, he needed some proof or substantial evidence of their claims. God didn't allow him to just take what they said against Paul and then make some bad judgment against Paul. And most likely that's because, too, the end of this section tells us, verse 12, that there was a council that was there. So it wasn't just Festus. Festus was kind of holding this trial with the Jews himself, this council of Romans. And Paul was a Roman citizen, so he was, off, he was due a fair trial, even though he's already had two fair trials and they were both innocent. Weird things, when it's God involved, weird things happen sometimes. Weird thing with Paul here. But anyway, he couldn't just say, you're guilty just because, because the council was like, well, there's nothing, nothing real there. There's no evidence. Remember, if you're, if, you, if you're accusing somebody, you're the one that has to have the burden of proof of what they actually did wrong before any, any semi-righteous judge you know, or any semi-righteous you know, jury would say, oh, no, guilty. Guilty, guilty, you know, just because they said it, it's true. That's, that's ridiculous. And Festus, just like Felix, he gives Paul a chance to defend himself. Look at verse 8. While he answered for himself, Paul, this is what Paul says, this is Paul's argument, straight, you know, from the hip, defends himself with truth. Truth's, truth's always the best. Paul says this, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. I, well, I didn't do nothing. 
What, they, they, they can't prove these things against me. They're just making up these things. I, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm telling you right now, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, Paul might have even said, if had I done something wrong, I would have said it. He already told that. He already said that in the section. We're going to read it. You know, if I did anything wrong and there's deserving of death, go ahead. But here he says, I haven't done anything wrong. Uh, there, there's no evident, evidence against him. And, and since the burden of proof in any trials is on the accusers, Paul didn't have much to say to defend himself. Paul says, hey, Festus, I'm innocent of the charges they bring against me. I haven't done anything wrong, neither against them nor against Caesar. You know, that's it. That's his defense. Truth. What, the, what is Festus forced to do, considering there's this counsel involved in any kind of righteous court, uh, like the one Paul's in? Keep reading verse 9. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, asked Paul and said, Are you willing to go down to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Here's where we really see that Festus is a real dirtbag. So, so he couldn't find Paul guilty and, and, and just give him the death penalty, but... But, 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 just like Felix wanted to help the lying, evil, and deceitful Jews by getting Paul to agree to go to Jerusalem so that the Jews could take their chance to attack him and kill him along the way, he, he goes ahead and offers it. What a dirty, nasty, sinful, awful guy Festus really was. The Jews, remember, I had really talked about this earlier, the Jews had told him of their evil plan, the full evil plan while he was in Jerusalem. And they, they might have probably, I'll, I'll probably guarantee this, that over the 10 days that he spent with them, while they're smoozing him and maybe whining him and dining him, you know, they're going, oh, come on, you know, Festus, you know, you know, you know, you know, this, that, and the other thing, you know, Paul, and he, who cares, he's just one guy, and, you know, he's really offended us, but, you know, I don't know that for sure, I wasn't there, but I'm just saying, that's what they would have, I see them doing. So, but, but going back to what we do know, the Jews had told him all about their evil plan in Jerusalem during his initial meeting with them that was set up by Felix, which means that he knew they were planning on killing Paul on the road to Jerusalem. And he didn't, and he didn't bite then because I think he had this sick kind of desire to be like, oh, I, I want to be in charge and I'm the one in charge. And, you know, I, I just want to find out for myself. It wasn't that he had any care about Paul at all. He, he just had some sick, simple curiosity about what Paul had done wrong. And he wanted to find it out for himself. And, and here now, now that he knows that Paul has done nothing wrong, especially nothing deserving of death, which makes Paul innocent. And once his sick curiosity is fulfilled, he is willing to let the Jews have him. And remember, he knew about their evil plot. So he asked Paul, knowing that if Paul said, yeah, sure, that he was going to send Paul with some kind of one or two guard caravan while, while Paul's being pulled behind, because normally prisoners didn't get anything to ride on. They just were pulled behind or, or set in some kind of cage. Knowing, well knowing that he was going to do this, that Paul said yes, that he would not make it to Jerusalem alive. Told you he wasn't a righteous guy, and he knew all this. And if Paul had said yes, Paul would have died. And Festus knew it, but he couldn't because of the council. Couldn't just say, oh, he's guilty just because. But he had to, knowing the Jews' plans, he had to be like, you know, go around about now that he didn't care. Paul was just some weirdo, and he didn't care about him. So, you know, whatever, let him die. I just want him out of my hair. Does Paul bite with the temptation to go back to Jerusalem? 
to go back to be with his brothers and sisters in Christ, to go back and be with, you know, maybe some of his family was there. We know that Paul moved to Jerusalem at, at an early era, at an age to, to learn under Gamaliel, the, the pharisaical leader. Did Does Paul bite for his fleshly desires? No, he's no fool. I'm sure he remembers the last plan the Jews had him against him in, in Acts 23 when his nephew told him that the, you know, came to him and told him and the Roman commander. So verses 10 and 11. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For I, if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying right there. Hey, if I've done anything wrong, just put me to death right now. Does Paul, is Paul ignorant of their devices? Just like Christians shouldn't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Is Paul ignorant of their devices? Keep reading. For if I have done anything deserving of death, I do not object by dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. See right there, he knew. He knew that they were in cahoots with Festus. He knew that if he went to Jerusalem, he knew the same plan the 40 Jews had before, where they were going to jump out and, and overpower the guards and kill him. He knew it was going to happen. So he says right there, no one can deliver me to them. Festus didn't say, I'm going to send you to Jerusalem to, 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 to uh, deliver you to them, but Paul knew that he wouldn't make it to Jerusalem. Instead, he says, I appeal to Caesar. Paul again defends and answers himself with truth. I love truth. And as I already mentioned, verse 11, he, he knew that they want, that Festus was willing to deliver him into their hands. He appeals to Caesar. Caesar's in Rome. That's where the Lord told me he was going. Acts 23, 11, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified from me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Paul just sees an opening to obey the Lord's calling on his life, and he takes it. Paul rejects, although he knows the plans. Maybe his flesh might have said, Man, your friends are there. Oh, your loved ones are there. You know, oh, this thing has gone too far. Well, just go be back and be with them. You know, but Paul rejects that fleshly desire to do that, and he he knows what the Lord has a calling on his life. Acts twenty three eleven, as I just mentioned, and and he knew. He just he just knew this is God's will. God's will is that I go to Rome. God's will is I know you know what whatever's going to happen to me there. This is where God wants me to go. So he sees an opportunity, and he says, you know what. Send me to Rome. At this point in his life, it had to happen. I'm sure God was preparing him for this day. Festus was either going to give him over to the Jews or he was going to release him. And the moment he released him from Roman custody and Roman guard, uh, he was away from their guards. What do you think the Jews would have done? Well, the Jews were going to kill him. So, so Paul's ready to go to Rome. And we know Paul knew that it was God's will for him to go anyway. Festus' judgment, read verse 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, remember I told you there was a council there, there's the council, when he had kind of talked with them about what Paul just said, they answered, hey, you've appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Uh, the council wouldn't have been in on the little agreement that the Jews spoke with Festus about in Jerusalem. So the council sees no wrong in, in Paul for anything, but yet there still seems to be some more that, you know, we know God had a hand in this. So they, they were, yeah, you know, you're a Roman citizen. You want to go have a trial before Caesar? You want to tell Caesar what's going on and, and talk to him about it and stand before him? Hey, go ahead. You're a Roman citizen. It's your right to have that. Paul isn't just going to Rome on his own, uh, mind you. Uh, I see this as God's again, his sovereign hand here and, and doing what he wanted with Paul. Think about it. If Paul had tried to go to Rome on his own, 
the Jews, now that we see their seething rage and anger towards him, they never would have let him make it if he was on his own. But here, God's sovereignty, uh, Paul isn't going to Rome on his own. He's going to go to Rome having to defend, you know, with, with all the Roman guards. He's going to go to Rome under uh, the guard of Roman safety, under the protection of the Romans, saving him from the evil-hearted, miserable, murderous Jews that were trying to kill him. Uh, told you, that's why the whole sermon title, God gave me the title just on Friday, uh, God's hand was not short to save Paul. After Jesus Christ told Paul in Acts 23, 11, that he was going to Rome to witness for him there, just, he, just as he had in Jerusalem, I wonder if Paul was wondering how God was going to accomplish his word to him since he was under Roman guard and custody. Think about it. You're going to go to Rome. You're going to do this for me in Rome. Paul's going, I'm not a free man. How? I could see his mind, right? How am I going to, how am I going to do this, God? I mean, how is this going to happen? I, you know, I don't know. Have you ever been there before? <laughs> you know God's told you to do something? You know God's telling you to do something? I don't know. I'm, how am I going to do that, Lord? I, 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 don't, I don't know. God's told me to do things in the past and currently. We're like Paul here. I did not know, I did not know then, I, just like I don't know now, how he's going to make it all work. Uh, some examples for me, uh, God gave me the command to, <clears throat> about 13 years ago or so to come to Texas. And at the time, I was stuck in a state, and we, me and my wife didn't have real good jobs. And you know, we were going to go another state, relocate the whole family. And you, how do you get a place there? We, we, couldn't, we didn't have the income to go to a bank and say, hey, give us a loan. <clears throat> you, know, you, you can't get an apartment in a city uh, if you don't have a job. And yet God worked it all out. They, they, I didn't know how God was going to do it. Yet God got me an apartment in a city that I wasn't even working in and a new state that was states away from where I was. When God tells you to do something, he makes a way. Uh, one time we were, I was in this evangelism team at this one church and I had to make the call this one night. It was at every Friday night thing somewhere. This one Friday night that the forecast had forecasted rain. And it was, it was just, they, they were a hundred percent chance of rain. And then normally I would just say, Hey, common sense, you know, Lord guys, you know, Hey, it's hundred percent chance of rain. We're out there with gospel tracks. We're out there with Bibles. Can't really keep that stuff safe. And we don't want to go out there and get sick. That wouldn't be something God wants us to do. But I prayed about it. God said, go. I said, what Lord, I, am I really hearing from you? And I asked for some confirmation. God gave it to me. Well, while we were out there, we get out there. We're, we're trudging along and speaking to this person and that person about the Lord. Well, as we get to this one street, we're on, we're on Harry Hines and Walnut Hill. I'll never forget it. We, and we, we take a, a ride on to Harry Hines to go on to Walnut Hill. And we're walking along. And, and there we see the clouds and, and the rain. We see it coming. We see it coming, and it's just, it's heading right for us. And I'm going, Lord, no, you told me to come. I know you told me to come, Lord. And now we're, there's nowhere to run, and our car is a mile away. And we got all this stuff, and how are we going to do this? Oh, my gosh. And the Lord said, command it to go away. So I said, well, okay, or I got no choice. Yeah, I'm stuck. So I, I stood there, and I said, the Lord rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. I command you to go away, storm. And guess what happened? Well, the storm left just like it was coming. And we ended up ministering out there for three or four hours that night. And even though there was rain, God made a provision. He saved us and made a provision for us to go. 
So God tells us to do things that we don't know how we're supposed to do it. He just says, be obedient. Gospel saving church. I don't know how it's all going to work. I've never been a pastor before up until the last five, six years. I don't know how it goes. God's making it work out. God told me, drive school bus. He's going to give it to me full time. Nobody drives school bus full time. You ask around, nobody drives school bus full time. 40 hours a week plus more. Yet God told me to do it. I felt the calling from God. I did it. Uh, it gives me full-time school bus job. I, I, that's just kind of how God works in case you didn't know. His hand is not short to save. His hand was not short to save Paul out of the hands of Jews who wanted to kill him. These three trials, plus the first time when they seized Paul in the temple, Acts 21, beating him to kill him, making four Different times the Jews wanted to kill him, but yet they did not prevail. God's hand is not short to save, not for his kids, nor for the lost. His kids first. Back in the Old Testament, when God looked on his children, the children of Israel, when they were in the fiery furnace of Egypt, his hand was not short to save them. When they called out to him and they groaned out to him, his hand was not short to save them and get them out of Egypt, using Moses as his spokesman. Even under the insurmountable odds against the Pharaoh's desire to keep them because he didn't want them to leave. Basically, they were free labor. They were one nation inside of another nation, and yet God's hand was not short to save them out of Egypt. Think how hard this was. A whole nation that lived in the same land underneath another nation, and still, and, and this other nation that was ruling them was not a nice one. They were harsh. They weren't going to let them go. Hey, we don't want to do all that work. You know, come on. We're, we're, we got the easy life here. We're not letting them go. Yet, God's hand was not short to save them in their darkest hour. God's hand was not short to save the Jews, through they, though they walked on foot through the desert for 40 years after they were delivered from the land of Egypt. He provided for them manna and water all the time, manna every day, water when they needed it at different times. He gave them light to see at night and shade against the harsh sun during the daytime, which is shelter. He gave them safety. They were never in 40 years attacked by a nation that would that overcome them. They, any nation that tried or that they went to, that they uh, went along, they either conquered or the nations just left them alone as they walked through the, the desert in the land of, you know, what we know is Israel, around, or right, the land right before Israel as we know it today. And he protected them. He guided them with his words of wisdom, both for their physical bodies and their spiritual bodies. God's hand was not short to save them. And that's the God that is God still the same today. His hand's never been short to help and come through for me and my family with all the necessities needed to live and survive, as, as well as many blessings along the way over the last 18 plus years that I've been walking with the Lord. Uh, most recently, my most, my most, one of my most trying times, my, my Papa, my dad, passed away about a year and a half ago, and he left me and my family to take care of my mentally ill mother. She has dementia. And, and we could not put her in a facility. It's expensive, and it's kind of complicated. I'm not going to go there, but we just couldn't. Just know that. And we had no idea how we were going to survive or pay our bills and work, you know, and pay for our home like we had before. And what happened? God's hand was not short to save us from this immense humongous, life-changing problem, and he saved us by making my mother, who's mentally ill, manageable. 
I, I have talked to dozens of people that have had mentally ill, dementia, Alzheimer's patients, and 99.99999% of them have said, you know what, after just a couple few years, we just couldn't take care of mom or dad anymore, and we just had to put them in this, that, you know, they became violent, they became... You know, they, they were, they were, they were, uh, the one lady we work with, or the, her mom would, would, would go down and she would, she had her in diapers and she would walk down the stairs and pull off her diaper and go to the bathroom on the floor. And a brother I have in the Lord was, was, was going to the bathroom and with her diaper on and tearing up her diaper and throwing it in the toilet and costing my brother hundreds and thousands of dollars, I'm sure, on plumber's expenses because she was clogging his plumbing. He couldn't take care of her anymore. Yet for me, in my family, somehow he makes my ma- my mom manageable so that we we survive on my full time income, uh, not by the church, but through God's school bus job for me and my wife just working part time. And that's just God's hand is not short to save us through any problem that we may have if we are his. Uh, if we're his, he has allowed us to continue to walk and have enough plus enough left over. God's hand is not short to save His people. Or deliver them from whatever issue they may have. One, uh, one, this this kind of encapsulates it. It just it just kind of just emulates it. One of the most ruthless tyrants to ever live, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, said this about God's hand not short to save his people. After Christ of the Old Testament saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the literal fiery furnace that he. Nebuchadnezzar had thrown them in, and after he saw God's hand, uh, not being not short to save, he said this, Daniel 3, 29, There is no other God who can deliver like this. That's God's hand, not short to save. The account of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Paul with the Jews, me with my father's death and my life, and the care of my mom shows us that, shows us this. God may allow his spiritual born-again children to go into and through the fiery furnace at times, but if it is not our time to come to be with him forever, and that, and that means obviously one time something that we're going to go through or, li- or just old life, or old, old, you know, being getting old, that's going to kill us. Now, one of those times, something's going to happen. We're, gonna, we're not going to live forever in this flesh, Okay. If it's not God's time for us to go home to be with Him, His hand is not short to save us from whatever we may be going through, whatever may come our way. He will use these fiery furnace situations of our lives only to test us and help us grow in our faith in Him, but He will always save us from them as we walk with Him and we continue to put our trust in Him. I exhort you, all you children of God that are out there who are listening to me today all over the world, don't give up. Even if it seems tough right now, God's testing you. Job, Joseph, me, Paul. God's allowing you to go through that fiery furnace maybe in your life because he wants you to grow stronger into his arms. He wants to see where you're at with him. He wants to see, are you going to walk away from me or are you going to stand with me? You know, the Bible says, Matthew 24, 13, only those that endure to the end should be saved. Do you really love Jesus Christ? And how much do you really love Jesus Christ? When bad things happen, are, are you going to run away? Which seed was planted on your heart? Which, which, what, what heart do you have 
Jesus gave a parable of, of the four seeds. And he said, the sower went out and he sowed seeds. And one seed landed on this ground and he on four seeds. Four, four soils, excuse me. Same seed, four soils. Only one of the soils continued to endure to the end, even through all the drought and all the weeds and all the everything. One seed made it because the heart of that person loved God. Do you love God, and are you going through the fire, and are you allowing, relying on Him, and, and, and trying Him, putting to His word, that His hand is not short to save? Is that you? I hope that's you. If, you, if, you've, if you've ran away, like, like Felix did after Paul's preaching, come back. Come back. It's not worth it. That, that side won't offer you anything. It's all temporal. It's nothing lastly, nothing forever. Come back. God's hand is not short to save you. If you're one of God's kids, He will. You may go through the fiery furnace, but He will save you from it. As long as it's, of course, not your time to go to be with Him forever. Which, in that case, if it is, hey, embrace it and be joyful because you're going to go see the face of the Lord forever. Right? Now, that's for God's kids. For those who are listening to this message that are not God's spiritual children, so born-again followers of Jesus Christ, that person I want to describe, uh, the person that's either fallen away and, and, and forsaken the Lord, or the person that's never come, your lives won't resemble a godly lifestyle. We read the Bible, we, we read the Bible that a Christian is a follower of Christ. A Christian is one who abstains from evil. A Christian is one who keeps their lives holy. A Christian is one who strives to do all the things that Jesus Christ says. I'm talking about the person here that's not in that category. So you're not striving to follow Christ. Your life doesn't resemble the life of Jesus Christ. You're, you're, you're not abstaining from the practice of sin. This, and, and if this is you, this is who I'm talking to. I don't care whatever preacher told you that you were saved and oh, because you gave your life to Jesus when you were 15 and you're good to go for the rest of your life. That, that's a lie. The Bible says those who endure to the end should be saved. So if that's you, the Bible says you're in danger. In danger because you've left the Lord. And if this is you, or you've never known the Lord, and you're seeking Him right now maybe, uh, you need to know that even though you've chosen a path that is against Christ by your ways and your rebellion against Him, turning to Him, against turning to Him, He still has this to say to you out of Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Listen, listen to what He has to say. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. So he won't save you or hear you or your prayers, that is, unless... Isaiah 45, 20 through 23, unless you humble yourselves and repent of your rebellion against him, like he told us, Isaiah 45, 20 through 23, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case, yet let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? 
Who has told it from that time? Have I not? The Lord. And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other I have sworn by myself. You who are far away, he says, look to me. Stop looking to the world. Stop looking to the sin. Stop looking to the evil. Stop looking to the covetousness. Stop looking to the alcohol, to the drugs, to all those temporal things that can never fulfill you. Stop looking to those things, God says. And he says, look to me, for there is no other God that can save you. None of your sin can save you in this life nor on Judgment Day. I was a big, fat, evil, rotten, sinner atheist for a long time in my life. And you know what? All the sin and all the hatred and all the alcohol I drank and all the hurting of other people, did it made me feel really good. Oh, man, I love to hurt people. And I, that was my old sick self, okay? But where I'm going with that is, is that even though I did all those things, yeah, it may have felt really good then. But a couple days later week later, I was still the same miserable, rotten, sinful, hateful person that I was. And I just needed to keep doing those hateful things just to even feel good for a day. That's not salvation. That's just a temporary band-aid on a gangrene cut. That's what that is. That stuff can't save you. Only Christ can save you. How do you do this under the new covenant? Jesus tells us, Matthew 16, 24, 25, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's called surrender. If you want to come after Jesus, if you want to look to God, then look to Jesus Christ, because he's the Savior of all mankind. Lived, died, rose again, gave his life free on the cross. And he says, let him deny himself. That, that means you're born as the ruler of your life. Jesus is saying, take yourself off the throne of your life and put me on there. <laughs> Allow me to be the ruler of your life. Allow me to be the one who guides your life. The one in which you go and you run to, that you look to, for how do, how do I live? How do I treat others? Man, how do I treat myself? How, how do you love me? Well, look to him. Because if you lose your life for his sake, surrendering it to him because of him, he says that you'll find it. He's wanting you to take that step and humble yourself, look to him, surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. He's wanting you to do that right now. As I was praying, I've taught this section so many times, and as I was kind of praying Friday afternoon, I was kind of working on this section of the scripture, God gave me the most really neat way to describe this surrender in the most plain, and I, it was just like the rhema word of God came upon me, and he showed it to me like this. How, I don't understand that surrender, though, Pastor. How do I give Jesus? How do I put Jesus on my heart? How do I? Here's how he put it to me, and, and this is this is golden. Again, I've never I've never seen it this way. This is so awesome. He, he says this. Tell him this. Surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. Just like you're surrendering yourself to your sinful ways right now. That's the kind of surrender that he wants. Same way you give yourself over to that sin that you so easily live in. Give yourself over 
to Jesus Christ, just like that. Surrender your heart to Christ like a husband will decide to surrender or commit themselves to each other on their wedding day. And not like the new age weddings, okay? The old weddings, right? When, when marriage meant something in America, you know, 50 years ago, right? Surrender to him and commit to him literally until death do you part. Not, oh, well, I just don't love him anymore. I just, you know, I just, boy, I really like that other thing a lot better. Oh, I'm not his soulmate. No. Give yourself to him like a man and a woman give themselves to each other on wedding day. Like you give yourself to your sin right now. Give yourself to Christ that way. He's waiting for you to come to him. And, and I don't got to say anything. You know who you are. Because my, largely my audience is online and you know who you are. And so God's talking to you right now and he's waiting for you. He, he's saying, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden. He wants you to look to him. Isaiah chapter 45. Now, let's pray. Because if you really want to know him, you'll go seek him. You'll go into your room and you'll fall on your knees and you'll, you'll talk to him and you'll, you'll commit yourself to him. Or, like Felix, you'll run away. I pray that you don't. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this message, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for your word. We thank you, Lord God, for your great love, Lord God. Your, your word says, 2 Peter 3, 9, that your love is, is long-suffering toward us. Lord, you're not willing that any should perish. Lord, long-suffering, Lord God. You, you, you've been long-suffering for people to come to you for salvation for, for six to 8,000 years. Lord, you are long-suffering, Lord. There's nobody that knows how to suffer long than you. And Lord God, I know that right now you're long-suffering, especially over some of the people that are listening to this message right now. They're running from you. Maybe, or maybe they thought they were yours, but now that they know, I'm just the Bible says, if, if you're not living for me, if you're not mine, if you're not following me, if you're not keeping my commandments, if you're not loving me, you're not mine. Now maybe they just learned today they're not yours. And Lord, for the first time, a preacher actually told them the truth, Lord, and I didn't lie to them or just say whatever I want to say to them so they'd give me money or so they'd come to my church or whatever, Lord. I told them the truth. And God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would work on them now until the very last breath of their lives, Lord God, to, to come to you, to surrender, to, to commit themselves to Christ the same way. This is an easy way to think about it. The same way as they commit themselves to their sin right now. The same dedication they give to their sin, you want all of them like that sin has all of them. And you want their hearts. Please, Lord, help us that are yours to stay with you for good, Lord. Those of us that are yours to endure to the end, help us, Lord. Help us to know your hand is not short to save. And God, for those that aren't yours, I pray, dear God, that they would come today and they would look to you. They would look to you and they would give their hearts to Christ the same way as they give it to their sin right now. In Jesus Christ's mighty name, we ask these things. Amen.